You're listening to sermons from First United Methodist Church in the heart of Huntsville, Texas. We hope you'll join us for traditional worship in our historic sanctuary at 8.30 or 11 a.m. or for contemporary worship in our new Community Life Center at 9.45. Visit us online at HuntsvilleFUMC.org and we hope you'll join us as we gather to worship, grow in faith, and go to serve the world in the name of Jesus Christ. Bible stories where you send the kids off to bed, right? Sweet dreams. <laughs> and it's uh, one of those stories where uh, pretty soon we're going to have Bibles uh, in, in the chairs ready for everyone who doesn't bring their Bible with them that is going to make you scramble to find that place to say, is that story really in there? What a weird, weird story. And yet Jesus, the story is there for a reason, and Jesus does what he does for a reason. And, and today I, I hope that we'll see just one, one angle on why Jesus goes to this place. So will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you for this invitation that you give us to follow you wherever you go, even when those places are on the other side. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you've heard it said you're either with us or you're against us. It's either my way or the... It's us and them. It's moral and immoral. Right, wrong. Enemies, friends. Insiders. Outsiders. Black, white, and brown. Rich and poor. Male and female. Protestants, Catholics, Baptists and Methodists. Christians and Muslims, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, conservationist, or drill, baby, drill, MSNBC or Fox News, gun control or card-carrying members of the NRA. Fingers point, battle lines are drawn, buttons are pushed, and all of this happening at the same dinner table or under the same roof or in the same nation, or even at the same church. Can you believe that? So how are we as Christians called to treat the other? Whoever the other is, is something that each of us as individuals define. Sometimes we define that as a church. Sometimes we define that as a nation. But most of the time, who we define as an other is simply just someone different from ourselves. So how are we as Christians called to treat the other? How can we live with the other? How can we as followers of Jesus, who often pray more for ourselves, reconcile with a God who doesn't ever explicitly say, pray for your own problems, but explicitly says, pray for your enemies? Enemies and friends, us and them. So to start, a story from Jesus. This one comes from John chapter 4. You may remember the story. Jesus has uh, been doing ministry up in the Galilee area and then down in Jerusalem. And the time comes where he moves from the area around Jerusalem or Judea back up to Galilee to continue doing his ministry. And the scripture tells us that he had to go through Samaria. 
Well, if you look at a map, you didn't have to go through Samaria, whether it's the modern roads or the well-worn road system of the first century. Jesus had many, many options to avoid Samaria. And yet here in the Greek, it tells us that he had to go. This word, he had to, is a word dei in Greek, which is, is a word of it is necessary. It's a divine imperative. Jesus had to go to Samaria. And when he goes to Samaria, he meets a woman there who's in the middle of the day, and, and she is drawing water from a well. And, the, and Jesus asks her for a simple drink of water, and she responds with a peculiar saying. She says, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Just to underscore the point, the gospel writer gives us a parenthetical reference and says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Not only do they not live together, not only do they not eat and drink together, they don't, they literally have separate water fountains miles away. They literally do not associate with one another. In fact, the idea that Jesus had to go through Samaria was so counter to the reality because what most Jews had to do was to completely avoid Samaria. And yet here Jesus is encountering the very other, offering grace and mercy and forgiveness and the brightness of the day in front of all to see. Most of the time when we see the other, however we define that, whoever is different from us, strange from us, obscure to us, at an arm's distance from us, oftentimes we put on our glasses of suspicion, right? We look at them not with rose-colored glasses, but some kind of shady glasses. And we, we suspect that there might be something underneath the surface that doesn't quite match up with the friendly face on the exterior. Something about the other that is uh, maybe a, a, an ulterior motive, or we have a sneaking suspicion that they're up to something no good. Jesus goes directly to the other, and it tells us that he had to go, and he showed his disciples to do the same. Now, in the passage that, that Madeline uh, walked the kids through, we see that Jesus in Mark's gospel there at the beginning has mainly been operating in the area around the Galilee. There were these three cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. Oftentimes on Bible tours, they'll refer to this as the Evangelical Triangle, the area where the gospel was mostly preached. It was, it was the Bible Belt of the day, or maybe the Torah Belt of the day. It was the area where it was a safe and friendly territory to the things of God. All the Jewish people lived in that area. And so Jesus was there and he was preaching and teaching and he healed people from various skin diseases and uh, he, he raised people up who had been paralyzed for life. He even cast out demons in that area. And, and as he did, larger and larger crowds began to assemble around him. He told these fantastic stories called parables. He talked about trees and plants and seeds and everybody loved it and they continued to gather around him. And then one day, he looks to his disciples and says, hey guys, let's go to the other side. Now we don't get much of a response. It tells us that they just got in the boat and headed on to the other side. But here's what we have to understand is that there was a, a strict division that happened in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. You could only go so far into the sea until you started to get into that deeper water. 
And when you got into that deeper water, you hit about that midpoint in the lake and you were on one side and then you were on the other side. And what they believed even as fishermen, those who were accustomed to being out on the water, was that when you got to that other side, this was the place where, yes, even the sea monsters lived. They had been out there at times where the wind began to pick up a bit too much and a storm would come in and they believed that that was a sign of evil, that, that, that this other side, this presence of evil was there and, and there was a, a type of storm that would happen that happened to them at the end of Mark chapter 4 when Mark tells us that there was a furious squall that takes over the boat and the disciples are absolutely terrified. In Israel today, the Arabic word to describe this type of storm is sharkia. A Sharkia storm. Now, I don't know if that's how they got Sharknado or not. But it's a crazy, crazy storm. They describe it if you had a nice sink filled with water. And then all of a sudden, someone just smashed their hand into it. The storm is violent. It comes out of nowhere. And you can imagine how they would attribute this to be the very presence of evil that overwhelms. Well, Jesus simply stands there and he, he rebukes the wind and the waves. And he says, peace, be still. Now, the disciples... They already knew this was not a good idea to go to the other side. They had been taught for their entire lives, you don't go to the other side of the lake. We're good Jewish people. We stay on our side, and those folks over there, they stay on the other. And when they get to the middle of the lake and they experience this storm, well, their very suspicions had been confirmed. This is not a good idea, Jesus. And yet when the storm calms down and the waters are calm, Jesus keeps that boat headed toward the other shore. And when they arrive, you heard what they found. A man completely out of his mind. A man half-dressed. A man who was chained with iron chains, who was so strong that he could break apart those iron chains. He was so violent, he not only lashed out at others, he lashed out against his own body, cutting himself with stones. A man who was said to be filled with many demons. And so you can imagine the disciples walking onto shore, seeing this guy and being like, yeah, never mind, you know, walking back. To the boat. They knew this was a terrible, terrible idea. Everything about this was anti what they had been taught. They were in an unclean territory with unclean people, with unclean spirits. The man was living amongst the tombs, the very place that was considered to be unclean. And did we mention the pigs? Jews did not eat pigs. They were considered to be unclean. And so they stayed away. Everything there was the embodiment of the sum of all of their fears. And yet Jesus decides that this is the place he has to go. This is the place he leads his disciples to go. One of the things I believe that this teaches us, as Jesus casts out these demons and this man is healed, is that there is no place... There is no human disorder or mental disorder or anything else that Jesus is unwilling or unable to heal. There is no person who is too far gone that Jesus is not willing to cross over to the other side to forgive. There is no place, what other, what other borders or boundaries are drawn on the map, there is no place that the presence of Jesus, that Jesus is not willing to cross over into that area to bring about grace and love. And he calls his disciples 
to do the same. Jesus had to go there to go to the other side because his grace was not just for us, or for, but for them. It was not just for the Jews, but was for the Gentiles. It was not just for the sane and in their right mind, but also for the crazy and the demon-possessed. Because as John 3.16 says, For God so loved us. No. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to show us the way of love. Our culture so much is a culture of us and them, is it not? A culture of finger pointing, of my side versus the other, and we tend to group in those groups uh, where we think the same and we believe the same and we act the same. And we even attribute that to other people. We attribute the very same beliefs to those who are across the aisle, maybe in the, in, in, in the House of Congress, or maybe even across the aisle here within the Community Life Center. We want people to believe the same as we do about a number of issues because we believe that if they believe what we believe, then, then they're safe. And if not, if they're on the other side, well, just like Jesus found in this man, they're quite dangerous. Now, I, I do believe that here in the text, as Jesus literally uh, healed people from their diseases and literally preached these sermons and, and literally went into this place where this man was filled with demons that he actually cast out the very presence of evil in this man. But if you allow me to allegorize just for a minute, Jesus goes over to the other side, to this unfamiliar place in unknown and unfamiliar territory where everyone that had followed him was afraid of this place. And this man just like all of the other, when it's pushed to a certain point, he's been demonized. He's been demonized. He's isolated. He's alone. The fingers have been pointed at him so long. And what is the first thing that Jesus does? The first question that he asks of this man. What is your name? What is your name? What a simple and basic question. Now, based on the context, we don't expect the man to say, my name is Steve. He says, my name is Legion, a word that the Romans knew as a military unit of four to 6,000 armed soldiers. The man is named Legion because there were many demons living in him. But Jesus goes to this man a man who others had cast out and was the embodiment of all of their fears, and he simply asks, what is your name? He starts the conversation. He reaches out to the other. He purposely crosses over the, the, the dark and scary waters of the Sea of Galilee to go to a place where they had never been before. In his book, How Followers of Jesus Should Serve the Common Good, Miroslav Volf writes this. He talks about how we have our glasses of suspicion about those who we don't know and don't understand or don't think or believe the same way we do. And he says, instead of wearing those glasses of suspicion, instead we take those off and we put on our glasses of hospitality. That we try to see others as Jesus saw them. And he says this, that first we look for the good in the other. We accept the person who we encounter for who they present themselves to be. Meaning we're not immediately going and trying to figure out, are they really who they say they're be, or do they have some ulterior motive here? And then secondly, we make judgments, interpretations, and assessments with an openness based on our knowledge 
of God's basic stance towards humanity. Meaning that all were created by God. All are children of God. All created in the image of God. And that God has called us all good. Maybe not all of our actions, maybe not all of our beliefs, but as a basic human being to call us good. We look for the good in others because we know that that's how Christ looks at us. As one author wrote, we behave in an unashamed human imitation of Christ whereby we are transformed from an enemy of God to a friend by God's sheer grace. Now our culture, as much as we may pray for its unity, as much as we may desire that others either come to our side or the other, our culture is so far from what Christ prays for when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It seems to be so far from this beautiful vision of the future which Isaiah preaches about when he says the wolf lays down with the lamb and the lion with the the goat and the even the little children will play around snakes those very things that are are feared and those predators those things that are pushed away as other they all exist together and there's no harm or destruction on God's holy mountain Isaiah says harm both through physical action or through those words that yes can hurt worse than sticks and stones in his book, Fear of the Other, retired Bishop Will Willimon writes this. Jesus commands us neither to agree with each other, nor just get along with each other, or tolerate each other. But Christ's people must love as deeply and broadly as Christ loves us. So not that we have to agree with each other, or just tolerate each other, but to love each other, even the other, as Christ loves us. And how does Christ love us? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Christ loves us so much. God loves us so much that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were still the other and far away from God, Christ died for us. That we might receive love. That we might receive forgiveness. So often we think of ourselves as the disciples who follow closely after Jesus when at some point each of us has been the one on the other side. Jesus stopping at no boundary or barrier to come and save and to forgive us. As Ephesians chapter 2 says that Jesus has come and when he comes he divides that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Any human divisions that we place between others, Jesus has come to reconcile and make one so that divided we might be in opinion or in thought united we might be in the love of Christ. And in that Jesus does for us what no no policy, no nation, no belief system that nothing else can do. Jesus does what we cannot do for ourselves. And he offers us the opportunity to be reconciled and to be made one. Another story that Bishop Willimon shares in his, his book is the story of a dying church in rural Alabama. A church that got sick of, of growing smaller and smaller. A church that got tired of looking more inward upon itself and its own needs. And it decided to take Jesus' call to be hospitable to the other in a radical way. First, it, it was the first church in the area to, to welcome in a biracial couple. Then it was the first church 
to, to welcome itself to, to rich and poor alike in the community. Then it began to open itself up. Yeah, a, a church that was mostly Republican would open itself up to Democrats, or a church that was mostly Democrats open itself up to Republicans. Folks who believed differently, they were welcomed in. And what one member of the congregation said was this. Those families that we welcomed reversed two decades of decline in our membership. It turns out there's a bunch of people just dying for a church that helps them be the people they want to be. A church that shows that Jesus can do what nothing else can. That's who Christ calls us to be. May we be a church like that. Let's pray together.